Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. Do you feel at times that we're living in a world gone mad? In a society experiencing rapid fire changes to standards, acceptable codes of conduct and moral fence lines, how do we know where the line is between right and wrong? Does the Bible have anything to say? Dr. Corbett is engaging in a four-part series titled Not Quite Right, focusing on four key social quandaries. Tonight is the second topic to challenge your thinking, politics. You better put your seatbelt on because this is, we are going just, just above the speed limit on this one. So when Christianity was founded, and this is a response to those people who say Christians should have nothing to do with politics. Well, I want to address that today. Because when Christianity was found, there was no democratic government. There just wasn't. In fact, the, the world at that time was ruled by an emperor, uh, Caesar Germanicus Nero, and, and he was the cruel, one of the cruelest men that have ever drawn breath into their lungs. He killed over a million Christians, and he just was, he was a despot. He ended up executing the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. And he was a tyrant. And yet, against this political backdrop of the early church, the New Testament instructs believers too. And here's Romans 13 verse 1. Let every person... So this is Paul writing, the man who would eventually be killed by this emperor. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. God, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Peter says in, in 1 Peter 2.13 that also we should honour the king, honour the emperor as well. So there's New Testament teaching about this. So consider this, at this time in at the time when the church was founded, there were no hospitals. There were no public schools. There was no social welfare, no unemployment benefits, no sickness benefits, nothing like that. No disability benefits. And I'm going to use this word, I was going to say no jails, but it, because I know that would take me a little bit longer to explain, I'm going to use this more appropriate word, no penitentiaries. The modern prison system is a distinctly Christian concept and it did not exist until fairly recently. And there were no charities. There was no Red Cross. There was no city mission. There was no benevolent society. There was no world vision, no compassion, nothing, no charities at all. Philippians 4.22 has this amazing little insight of what the Christians were about, because in the first century, while you could point out to me, but, the, but pastor, the, the Christians of the first century weren't politically active. Yeah, but look at what they were doing with their witness. We get this little, just this little glimpse of a verse. In, a, in, in Philippians 4.22, it says this, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's, and some translations don't render it household, they render it palace. And for our American friends, that's not Las Vegas. This is Rome. This is... This is Paul saying, we now have believers working for Caesar Nero. In his palace, some of his officials have now converted to Christianity. Wow. So these Christians 
were not politically active because there was little to no scope or even possibility for them to be active. There were no elections. There, were no, there was nothing like that. Caesar appointed senators. He, he appointed people. They had mock elections. It was a pseudo-democracy. He was a dictator. So while all this was the backdrop to the first century, the, the, when the church started, Christians were socially active. And what were they doing? They were caring for the poor and outcasts. And while they were doing this, while they were caring for the poor and the outcasts, we read in Acts chapter 19, verse 20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see, the early Christians didn't just roll their sleeves up to feed the hungry and clothe the poor. They also used their mouths to tell them about Christ. Christos hokurios. It means Christ is Lord. Because that saying was Caesar hokurios, which means Caesar is Lord. And Christians said, no, Christos hokurios, Christ is Lord. So what happened, and we're going to track through the centuries now as we come into the second century, we're going to see that Christians established leper care. No one wanted to deal with lepers. They established hospice care. You know what the Romans used to do if someone got sick and was dying? They would literally take them out of their household, out of their homes, and put them, dump them in the street because they didn't want to catch their germs. Christians would take these people in. It was the establishment of hospice care, which we get our word hospital from. Hospice care is care for those who are dying. They established abandoned baby care. You see, in, by the second century, the late second century, the Romans despised baby girls. A baby girl? I mean, what use is a baby girl, the Romans reasoned. They can't fight our armies. They can't go out and plough our fields. So what Romans were doing was if you had a baby girl, they would take them down to the, to the civic square and put them there in a cold winter's night, which would get below zero temperatures, and those children would die of exposure and the dogs can eat them and who cares. They later used forests to do that so that people couldn't see the unsightly smell of decaying baby corpses. And the Christians of the late second century were going into the forests and the market squares and rescuing these baby girls and raising them as their own. See, the whole concept of an orphanage was developed by Christians. By the 3rd century, Christianity had spread around the empire and ultimately it culminated in Emperor Constantine's conversion. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, we see why this is not surprising. Because Christ had already said in the Beatitudes, pray for those who persecute you, and it was the Roman emperors who were persecuting Christians. So they began to pray for them. And this is how Paul wrote to Timothy. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And that's the point. You see, we need to be involved in the political process so that the gospel can reach more people. By the 5th century... Rome was sacked by the Visigoths and many blamed the rise of Christianity for it. They saw it as the gods punishing them. And against this backdrop, 
a Christian pastor by the name of Augustine of Hippo. Augustine pastored a really small church, but what he wrote and what he taught in that really small church is still being read today. And, and he wrote a book called The City of God Against Pagans. And in, and in this book, he argues that, that because Rome was now destroyed by the Visigoths, who were a Germanic people, that was the ancient Germans, he, he argues that Christianity shouldn't be worried about political things because we're heavenly minded. We should be more worried about the mystical, that is the spiritual heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, rather than being worried about earthly politics. And there became a deviation. And we're going to follow this through now. And so in the 9th century, in 800 AD, Pope Leo III asserted that he had authority to appoint or to depose earthly kings. It was he who crowned Charlemagne as the emperor. And this began what's known as the Holy Roman Emperor. And there's a coin there with Charlemagne's head on it, and it calls him something like Pontifex Maximus, the supreme ruler of the world. And the Pope said, he may be the supreme ruler of the world, but I'm the Pope and I'm above him. Ah, nice. In the 16th century, something significant happened in 1517, and it happened with a hammer. Anyone know what happened on, in 1517 with a hammer? The hammer blows that shook the world. And what was it, Rob? Martin Luther took a hammer and he nailed a list of things to the door of the, the, the church at uh, Wittenberg. And the 90, it's called the 95 Theses. And that he, he protested against some of the corruptions that he saw in the then Roman Catholic Church. And this began what's called the Protestant Reformation. And it challenged the corrupt state church. Well, as time went on, uh, over, the next, over these next few years, Protestants such as John Calvin and John Knox in particular called for this thing called a separation of church and state because up until then, they were kind of one deal. You couldn't be a pastor or a bishop unless the government appointed you and so on. And so they called for a separation of church and state. Now, let's, let's come across specifically to England now. And you may not be aware that as, as famous as it is that America's had a civil war, England had a civil war. It wasn't very long, but it, but it had one. Anyone ever heard of Oliver Cromwell? Okay, so Oliver Cromwell was leading a group called the Puritans, and they responded to, the again, the, the corrupt nature of the King of England at the time, who was Charles I, and eventually that led to him being uh, executed. And there was, there was a thing that followed after this called the Act of Settlement. It was signed in 1701 in which the, uh, Oliver Cromwell's um, turn as the leader of England didn't last very long. He wasn't very good at it apparently. So they invited, I think, Charles II the son of Charles I, who had fled, I think, to France to come back and resume the throne. But they said, come back. You can be our figurehead king, but we're now going to establish this thing called a parliament. And a parliament, if you know what the word parler in French means, means to speak, and a parliament is a house of speaking. A lot of talk goes on in parliament. That's what it means, a house of talk. 
And so they established this thing called Parliament. They began to establish what we now call the Westminster Parliamentary System of Government. So Christians were at the the seedbed of, of, of the founding of this thing called the Westminster System of Government. Well, we, we come through uh, another century or so into the 18th century and we're around, so we're now around the early 1700s. And in the early 1700s, we have, we have this, what has just happened politically. The king is no longer giving moral leadership, it's a parliament. And, and the parliamentarians are not, like, don't think modern parliament where you know, everyone's got an equal vote, women can vote, men can vote, everyone over 21 or 18 can vote. Don't think that. Only land owners could vote. Only the rich could vote. So guess who they voted for? Their rich mates. So essentially, anyone in parliament in the 1700s had bought their place there. And then they could... Uh, then what happened was they... they they just lived the high life. They didn't really care about people. It was totally corrupt. And so you had this, this system. And what, what happens when the leaders of a nation, as it says in Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation. So what does unrighteousness do? It, 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 it depletes a nation morally. And so into this situation, early 1700s, we have some of the most grotesque abuses of women, some of the most grotesque abuses of children, and of course, some of the most heinous crimes against humanity taking place, all sanctioned by the parliament. Worse than that, England became economically dependent on these things. So God raised up two of the greatest preachers that have ever walked the planet, Charles Wesley and the greater preacher George Whitfield. And historians, secular historians will tell you the thing that prevented England from going into a bloodbath of revolution at that time were these two preachers. Because just over in the channel, France was experiencing revolution. John Wesley says once he saw what Christianity really was and he really got saved, and he really gave his life to Christ. This was an Anglican minister who wasn't a Christian. And then one day God opened his eyes and he saw from Scripture that he needed a saviour. And he turned to that saviour. And John Wesley was filled with the Holy Spirit, baptised in the Holy Spirit. You did extraordinary things, words of knowledge, words of prophecy, prayed for the sick, did all this stuff because he was now full of the Holy Spirit. He went to a church so excited and in one of his journal entries he said, now I went to the seven o'clock service and before I'd finished preaching they threw me out of the church. So I went to the next church where I was due to speak at the eight o'clock service. Before I got halfway through they dragged me out of the pulpit and threw me into that church. Because he was saying, you're sinners who need to be converted to a saviour. This was not a popular message. But eventually that day I think five churches threw him out of their pulpits. Five churches threw him out. I've only ever been thrown out by... Oh, you don't want to know. So here's Wesley. He's going, well, if I can't preach in the church, I'll preach in the streets and the fields. He begins to preach in the fields. Hundreds gather. Then thousands gather. 
Then tens of thousands of people gather to hear Wesley proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Saviour. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people are coming to Christ. Whitfield was amazing. He was a little man, cross-eyed, bow-legged, ugly as had the face only a mother could love. And yet, when he preached, they said it was as if God himself was speaking. He could speak in an open field to a hundred thousand people. That's like speaking to a packed MCG. And his voice could be projected. This preaching revival lasted 40 years, from 1740 to 1780. But you know what? At the end of it, around 1780, there were no more people in church than there was at the start of the revival. All the social evils of how women were treated, children were treated, Africans were treated, were still happening. And so we have this situation where despite this preaching revival, England, by and large, had not changed. And why hadn't they changed? Because the heart of its leaders hadn't changed. So what did God do? God raised up a politician from among them. A young man in his early 20s who was from the aristocracy. He was from the merchant class and he was a parliamentarian who then, on the heels of Wesley's preaching, read a book with someone as they travelled through France and he realised that although he went to church, his pastor was John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. Although he had all that in his favour, he had never given his heart to Christ. And so this young man, William Wilberforce surrendered his life to Christ. And he, he said, how can I remain a politician? I'm now a follower of Christ. All politicians are corrupt. <laughs> Everyone knows that. And so he went to his old pastor, John Newton, and he said, what should I do? And John Newton said these famous words to him out of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Whatsoever state the Lord has found you in, there remain. God found you in politics. God wants you to stay in politics. Be a politician for Jesus. And Wilberforce was wondering, well, what does that look like? Because he did not have a role model. He did not know what that looked like. We have an etching of John Wesley writing to William Wilberforce saying these words, Wherein I have failed you, he's writing to the 23-year-old William Wilberforce, you must not. Wesley realised that you can change the heart of the nation, but if you don't change the heart of its leadership and how it is politically governed, ultimately, whatever change was affected in the people will be lost. It will evaporate. So God raised up William Wilberforce to promote the gospel and its values in England through the parliament. He began to look at how people were treating each other and said, this is not honouring Christ. He became the patron of 70 different societies, including the RSPCA. Because he said, if there is a God who is full of mercy and grace, as we heard Reese talk about before, 
then surely how we treat not only one another, but how we treat our animals matters. You see, the compassion of Christ was not just for people, but it was for animals. It was for children. It was for the vulnerable. And William Wilberforce affected these changes. He could not stand up straight for the pain he was in. He had massive curvature, scoliosis, curvature of the spine. He needed a metal brace just to be able to stand up. God raised up this frail, fragile man. And as a result of Wilberforce's efforts in, in abolishing the slave trade, in bringing, bringing enlightenment to what was happening to women and children and slaves, and he's best well known for what he did in the slave trade, as a result of his efforts in Parliament, these people were better off. But not only that, church attendance across England through Wesley and Whitfield's 1740 to 1780, it was a straight line. And all that means is all those who were going to church who weren't Christians, by the end of that 40-year preaching revival, were now Christians. That's all. But there were no more people in church. 1793 to 1833, the 40-year political career of William Wilberforce, hundreds of thousands of people across England started to go to church because William Wilberforce began to declare, this is not right. We have not done right. We are guilty before God and we need a saviour. And people got it. And he said, it is not right for us as a parliament to do nothing about this, that people can be abused and hurt and, and, and treated like this. It's not right. In the 19th century, in 1831, something very, in my mind, sad happened. And this is when a lady by the name of Mary MacDonald said that she now had a new revelation from God that the church was not God's plan A, it was plan B. And there were some men who were Christian leaders who were persuaded by this lady who claimed to have this new revelation. And this is what they introduced. They introduced this new revelation called the rapture of the church. And it's the idea that at any moment now, that God's going to get rid of the church from planet Earth and the whole world can just go to hell. And so millions upon millions upon millions of Christians believed it. And they said, if the world's going to end like this, who cares about politics? Who cares about the poor? Who cares about the oppressed? We're out of here. Any minute now, it'll happen. Any minute now. And the sad thing is there are still millions of Christians who believe it's true today. But it is deadly, it is dangerous, and it is just downright stupid. And if you want to know what I really think, ask me later. What this did was it caused Christians to withdraw from society, to withdraw from universities. Stop sending, Christian parents stop sending their children to university because they were evil. And we, we, we need to get ready for the rapture because we, we're out of here any minute. We don't want our kids to miss out on the rapture. So we need to go and start Christian colleges. And, and this thing called Bible colleges started in the late 1800s because no longer could you send your child to a university for an education. And it also meant, well, we can't get involved in politics either because pol politicians are all evil and wicked and we need to stay right away from that. This disengagement 
from what the world was about and doing reached a tragic and bloody climax in the 1930s and 1940s. Horrific. It actually, I'm going to tell you, it, it, because the church withdrew its voice from the world, it led to the deaths of millions upon millions upon millions of people. And I'm not exaggerating, I am understating. In the early 1930s, when Adolf Hitler began to say some of his rantings, we had this crazy situation where Christians said we can't challenge him because that's political and we're spiritual. And along came this young man again, he was about 23, 24, Dietrich Bonhoeffer began to preach in the Lutheran church of which he was an ordained minister. We need to tell our people that this man, Adolf Hitler, is evil and his movement, the Nazi movement, is evil and wicked. And we should not say nothing. Our silence is saying something. And the something that we're saying is wrong. And his colleague said, you're a young whippersnapper. You know nothing about anything. Shut up. And he kept going. Adolf Hitler personally had him jailed. Two days before Hitler himself committed suicide, the last edict he gave was to take Dietrich Bonhoeffer out of the prison cell where he was, strip him naked and hang him on the gallows. Two days before Hitler died and the war ended, that was his last edict. And people who witnessed that event said, he went to his death without fear. He went to his death willingly and gladly, overcome with the peace of Christ. Why? He was 39 years of age. And he pleaded with his nation, he pleaded with his brothers in the church to stand up. And they wouldn't. And the result was literally millions died. While Western society increasingly challenges our place, Christianity's place, and our teachings, the church has largely been asleep and silent, and it's not right. Today, there are thousands of people needlessly dying because we, the church, won't step up, not into a role, but the role, the role, Christ has commissioned us to fulfill. Don't tell me we have no nothing to do with politics. It's not about politics. It's about the welfare and care of people. And can I tell you, that's what politics is about. The welfare, protection and care of people. The church has been challenged and the church has retreated and been guilty of cowardice. You know, and I have spoken out against certain things that I've seen happening. I've had a number of Christian pastors say to me, a number of Christians say to me, well, that was very courageous. And every time they say it, my heart sinks and I ache and I hurt to think that it takes an extra special courage in their mind to do what's right. That shouldn't be the extra special. That should be where we start. 
God today is now raising up prophetic leaders, I believe, who are engaging the world and challenging the church to get involved. Get involved. Get back in the game. Maybe God is calling you to run for office. For God's sake, literally, for God's sake, do it. Get involved. Get involved however you can in society. Don't wait at the rapture bus stop. The bus isn't coming. Get back in the game. We need to be politically involved. We need to get involved academically. And sometimes this means, hey, hang on, I'm, you know, I'm a professor or a lecturer in this college. I don't agree with that position. Sometimes that's all it takes. At least if we do that. We need to get involved artistically. We need Christian artists like never before. We need people to get involved judicious, judicially. We need Christian journalists who know how to tell the truth. Wouldn't that be novel? And we need a whole generation of pastors who do have the courage to stand up and do what's right because it matters. So much for the separation of church and state. Perhaps we should be considering what will happen to our state if the church is separate and silent. More in the Not Quite Right series next week, the topic sexuality with guest speaker Paul O'Rourke. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters, including tonight's program, Not Quite Right Politics, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For regular updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.